Hello, everybody. Welcome back. This week is Parshas Vayeshev. And we're going to talk about Hilchus Hanukkah. And Amir Tzashem, next week, Parshas Miketz, we will continue with the topic we're in the middle of, which is um, proper uh, the, the proper Hanhaga, Hilchus Sneas in the workplace. So going on to Hilchus Hanukkah, there's a minig, which is particular to women on Hanukkah, actually, the meaning of not doing work, quote-unquote, during the time in which the nearest Hanukkah burn, which is a half hour. The reason for this minig is to really just to remember that we don't utilize light for our own purposes. We don't use the nearest Hanukkah for any you know, any other use other than just to enjoy the light and appreciate the Kedusha. We don't count money. We don't um, use it to see. And the, re- the reason why this minig is particular to women is because part of the Nes Hanukkah occurred through heroism of a woman, Yehudis, and women took upon themselves to commemorate this by accepting upon themselves not to do work during the time that the lights burn. What exactly constitutes malacha work? So the pies can say that cooking, cleaning, and things like that are permitted. And the work here refers mainly to sewing or washing clothes. So the concept is kind of similar to what's allowed on Chalamoid. Therefore, even if you have some real work to do, but it will be a loss of money if you don't do it, like risking your job or things like that, one may do malacha as necessary as would be permitted on Chalamoid. Women have an identical obligation in lighting the menorah as men. However, all married women are yoytze together with their husband's lighting because of the concept of ishtay kigufay, meaning that a man and a wife are considered as one. And this works the opposite way as well. If a woman lights, her husband is automatically yoytze, wherever he might be. And this becomes relevant when, if someone's husband is away on Hanukkah, so in that case, it would be the wife's obligation to light a menorah in the house, and her husband might want to light wherever he is, but he needs to be careful to light actually before his wife lights, because if his wife lights first, the husband is automatically yaitse. Same way when the, no matter where a woman is, she's yaitse when her husband lights, even if she doesn't happen to be there for whatever reason. And according to some Paiskim, even if he doesn't want to, he's automatically say So what he should do, if he wants to light his own menorah, wherever he is, he should light it before his wife lights, and then she can light it home with a bracha, and this way he's done his chiv already, and then she could do her chiv at home, and everybody gets their mitzvah. Uh, but otherwise, if she lights first, it would be a question whether he can even make a bracha when he lights after her, he's automatically yaitze. So a husband and a wife are automatically yaitze with each other, Either the husband lights or the wife lights, whichever one lights, you know, the, the other one is going to automatically be Yaitse. But obviously, one should be there to hear the brachas. So you should hear the brachas of the Hadlik Nershal Hanukkah and to hear the bracha of Shasanisa. That's an obligation, again, on a woman as much as a man, and a woman has to hear the brachas if she can. <clears throat> now, being that all women are obligated just as men, so therefore the restrictions of the mitzvah are on women as well, which means that once it becomes the time that we're obligated in Hadlaka, which is once it becomes dark, uh, it becomes Tesek Echavim. We're not supposed to eat before doing the mitzvah of Menor. Now, when we say you're not supposed to eat, it doesn't mean you can't eat anything. You can eat actually most things. But what you can't eat is bread, 
like a sandwich or anything that's mezainus, uh more than a kebeya. So exactly how much that is is not so important. But one, in other words, stay away from mezainus and and bread, latkes or hadama, shahakal, drinking. That all is permitted. Specifically, bread and mezainus, which is not permitted until you do the mitzvah. And sometimes it's very difficult not to eat. Let's say you're on a road trip and you're not going to be able to get to light until much later. You're at work and you're not going to get home until much later. Your husband's not going to get home until much later. So you can rely on the opinions in that situation that the restriction doesn't apply to women because they essentially, what they're doing is is appointing their husbands as a shliach, as a proxy. So once you have your husband as your shliach, so you can, then you're free to eat. So if it's a shasad chak, you can rely on that. But essentially, a woman and a man both should be waiting to eat until they have the, they've done the mitzvah of as neris. Um, someone whose husband is out of town and has her own obligation to light won't have that heter, and a single girl who needs to light is living in her own apartment or a girl in seminary also has no such dispensation. So uh, they, they would be just like any other man and has, have a requirement to wait to eat until they do the mitzvah lakas nares. How is recited all of Hanukkah? And it's actually a very interesting question why it is that women are not obligated in the Hall of Hanukkah. It does not, to, to be tr- uh, totally truthful, there are some Paiskim that hold that women have a full obligation of Hall of Hanukkah, but the overwhelming majority say that it's like Hall any other time. It's like davening, that you're not, you should do it, but you're not obligated. If you can't, you can't. So in any case, Hall is recited all of Hanukkah. It can be recited all day until sundown, but it can't be recited at night or after Shkia. And how, when a person is saying how, it has the same status as Birchus Kriyashma, which means that you're not supposed to talk in the middle. So it's important to find a time to say how when you'll actually be able to get through the whole thing without having to take a break in the middle. At least not, be, not, not know that you're going to have to take a break in the middle. Obviously, if, you know, a baby wakes up, you do what you got to do. But the you should try to time it so that you'll be able to get through it. There's an obligation to be mechanach children in the midst of Hanukkah. So all children who are of chinach age certainly need to be present while the menorah is lit so they can be yaitzah with the brachas as well. And boys light their own menorah once they're old enough not to burn themselves. And the custom is that girls are yaitzah like the mother of the family and are yaitzah with their father or mother's hadlaka if the father's not lighting. Um, but it's, if they would like to light on their own, they're welcome to. It's not clear why single girls don't light their own menorah. It may be because, I guess, when they get married, they won't. So we just include them in the midst of the house. It's not clear. But regardless, they are obligated, and they're obligated certainly after Bas Mitzvah. They're most certainly obligated, and they're obligated as children also in Chinook. So they definitely have to be present. If they want to light, they can. And they have to be with the brachas. And and uh, therefore, it's important to realize that if they are, whoever is lighting, children and uh, girls alike, if they're lighting on Arab Shabbos, you have to make sure that they don't light the regular Hanukkah candles because those only burn for a half hour. And you're not into with that if you light that on Arab Shabbos. You would need to make sure that they light candles which are large enough and to burn until this man after Tesech on Shabbos. So they have to use like regular Shabbos candles or not light and be yaitza with the, the man who's the husband that's lighting. So that's an important thing to realize. Everybody is obligated in the and 
you can't do the mitzvah incorrectly when you're being mechanach. So they can't light little candles on Arab Shabbos. They have to either make sure to get a proper oil or candles that will burn long enough, or in that situation they should just be with, uh, with their pants. The parasha, in parasha Vayeshev, is mostly dedicated to telling the story of how Yosef got sold as a slave and ended up in Mitzrayim, and it details how he suffered in Mitzrayim. In the middle of the parasha, it segues to a different topic, telling us the story of Yehuda, the only one of the Shvatim who we are given some information about his wife and family. He married a woman called Bashua and had three sons with her. His first two sons both died after marrying Tamar because they sinned, and Hashem punished them. And it's a very tragic story and great suffering for Yehuda. Then Tamar is promised by Yehuda that she will marry Shela, the third son, but that doesn't materialize. And then Bashua, Yehuda's wife, passes away. Another tragedy. At this point, Tamar chooses to do something bold and highly questionable, she disguises herself and seduces Yehuda, who never becomes aware of her identity. Why does she do this? So the passing makes it quite clear because she had an intense desire to be a part of the Avis and the future of Kaisral. She was a great Tzedekist. She was the do- actual daughter or perhaps the descendant of Shem ben Now, we're all the descendants of Shem ben but when, when Chazal call her the daughter of Shem ben it means that she's someone who actually followed in Shem's footsteps. So she was a great Tzedekist. And she justified her actions with this reasoning that she wanted to be the mother of Kalishal. Eventually, her pregnant pregnancy became apparent, and she is thought to be a sinful woman, that she went and she sinned. And she is about to be punished by none other than Yehuda himself, who sat on a basin together with Yaakov and Yitzchak, and they decree that she's liable for the death penalty. However, she refused to disclose the little piece of information that would have saved her and her unborn children's lives. The very important fact that it was Yehuda that she had lived with, which was permitted according to the halacha that prevailed at that time. Why didn't she disclose this? Because it would be intensely embarrassing for Yehuda to publicize that he chose to live with her in seeming sin. She would rather die a horrible death than embarrass him in front of Yaakov, Yitzchak, the Shvatim, and the community. So instead, what Tamar does is she sends him a hint by giving him the three guarantees he had given her, his tzitzis, his signet ring, and his staff. She hoped he would recognize them and realize that he was the one that she had lived with, and she hoped that he would admit it, thereby sparing her. But it wasn't certain. The amount of gvura, the strength, the greatness of spirit which was required to make this admission in public, it was astronomical and is beyond what we can imagine or picture, even relate to. We see that Yehuda is highly praised for this in Psukim and in Chazal, and it's the reason that he merited to get a bracha from Yaakov Avinu in Parshas Vayichi, rather than being rebuked like Shimon and Levi. Yehuda does admit, and she's spared, and she gives birth to Peretz and Zerach, the fathers of Shevet Yehuda, and ultimately David Amalek, and of course, finally, Mashiach to Canaan. So she pays a very pivotal role as a mother of Klai Yisrael. Now, as soon as the parasha concludes this story, then we go back to the story of Yosef. And the placement of this story in Yosef's saga is interesting, which Rashi comments on and brings a medrash to clarify what is the connection between these two stories and the particular place where the story of Tamar and Yehuda are, is inserted. 
So the second pshat Rashi brings is astounding. He says the Pasuk is coming to demonstrate that the same way Tamar l'shem shemayim niskavna, her whole intent was holy. It was pure. It was for the sake of heaven. Likewise, you know, she wanted to be the mother of Klai Yisrael, bring Kedusha to the world. Likewise, the wife of Petifar, l'shem shemayim niskavna. She also had pure intentions. She also, she tried to seduce Yosef for the sake of heaven. Now, how could that be? So Rashi explains that she practiced astrology. And her reading of the stars told her that she would be the mother of Yosef's children. So she very much wanted to make that happen. However, she was mistaken because she wasn't the mother. She was supposed to be the grandmother. Her daughter Asnas was the eventual wife of Yosef. Now this is shocking. How can we equate the wife of Petifar with Tamar? The wife of Petifar, according to Rashi himself, is later referred to by the Medrash as the Arura, the cursed one. She spread vile lies about Yosef and saw to it that every major news outlet in ancient Egypt carried the story. Fake news. She riled up social media. She got the internet on it. Everybody was talking about the story. What a hateful woman. How could she be L'Shem Shemayim Niskavna? What are we possibly meant to learn from this? In truth, there is a very powerful lesson being taught here. Yes, both Tamar and the wife of Petifer, they started out on equal turf. They had a vision which was rooted in holiness, and they justified a questionable act, kind of saying the end justifies the means, and part of their approach was approved by heaven. Now, Tamar was Zeicha, the tremendous siyata deshmaya, in her efforts, and the same thing would have happened to the Aisha's Petifer as well. Could have been the same thing. She could have had the same success. But here's where they diverged. Tamar was sentenced to a death penalty by Yehuda. And this would have destroyed her vision, her dream, her whole L'shem Shemayim Niskamna, everything she wanted everything she risked in order to become the mother of Kali Yisrael, she would burn to death with her children. And she had an easy out. It simply involved talking and telling the truth. She would come out the heroine of the story. She meant well. She justified her actions. She was promised Shayla and not given her due. And most of all, she would survive. And her vision would become a reality. But she refused to do this. Why? So Chazal say, Noyach la'adam, Noyach la'adam, she'apel atmai, and that means it's easier, lighter, more enjoyable, so to speak, for a person to throw himself into a fiery furnace, quite literally, rather than embarrass his friend publicly. Her future would have come at Yehuda's expense. She couldn't do it. She wouldn't do it. She chose to throw herself to her death and smash any dream, any vision, her own life and her unborn children's life rather than embarrass Yehuda and cause him humiliation. And remember, this is a humiliation he brought upon himself. He decided to live with her. He decided to give her the death penalty. Let him suffer. No, she wouldn't do it. There's nothing in her eyes that could justify that. But look at the wife of Petifa. What does she do? As soon as Yosef refuses, she turns into a witch. She reports him to her husband. She lies about what happened. She causes him to be put into jail, a dungeon. She brings untold shame 
and humiliation upon him, so much so that the news stations of Egypt only stopped talking about the nerve and brazenness of this disgusting slave. They only stop when the Sar HaMashkim and the Sar HaEifin are imprisoned, according to Rashi. They needed politics to draw people's attention away from this sensational story. Until then, it was all about Yasef. So how did this happen? How did she end up so differently than Tamar? She had very different values than Tamar. That's why her dream and her vision was not realized. She couldn't become a mother of Kali Yisrael. The stars, they're fluid. It could have been her, possibly, but she demonstrated why it couldn't. If you want to be a Jewish mother, one of the Imoyas of Kali Yisrael, you have to be on the level of Rachel Imenu. Give away your whole future to save your sister's embarrassment. And Tamar continued down that same path. She gave up her life to save Yehuda from embarrassment. You give up everything for others. But the wife of Petifer could only think of herself and her loss of opportunity to be one of the Imayas and transformed into an Arura, a cursed woman. Her attitude was, I'm doing this for the sake of heaven and everybody owes me for it. Everybody better toe the line or else they're the evil ones. And it's important to realize that the wife of Petifer must have been a woman with good values because she raised Asnas, Yosef's eventual wife, and Asnas was a woman worthy of being a mother of Menashe and Ephraim, and even in Mitzrayim. She was a holy woman. So, but this was her failure. This was Aisha's Petifar's failure. This was her Achilles' heel. She could not give up on her own desires, even though they were seemingly holy desires, for the sake of someone else. And on a deeper level, the paths of Tamar and the wife of Petifar really diverged from the beginning. Tamar meant L'shem Shemayim, and that was her absolutely only concern, all she cared about, was L'shem Shemaim. What does heaven want? Her own needs and desires did not play a role, and they didn't warp her judgment. The wife of Petifer took the L'shem Shemaim, but allowed it to become tainted by her own wants and desires, her own negis, and that warped her vision and hindered her ability to know what heaven really wants and what she needs to do and therefore she strayed very, very far to the point where she became a cursed woman. I saw a nice shot in Sefer Afike Eliyahu that we say about the Hanukkah lights when we light them, which we mentioned before. We say, These lights are holy, and we have no permission to use them for personal use which is why, mentioned before, women don't do malacha during the time that the lights are burning. And he says that this is hinting at this concept. Serving Hashem is a holy mission, and we should stay focused on the light, realizing it's not about us. It's about Hashem, staying true to the will of Hashem and leaving our personal wants and desires aside for the sake of doing what's right and what's true. Haner is halalu They're holy. And stick with the holiness. Don't mix in, let's not mix in our own desires which will warp our understanding of what it what is that Hashem really, really wants of us. And it's a, it's a guiding light in a literal and a figurative way to demonstrate what it was that caused the Eishas Petifar to go off the path and Tamar to stay straight on it. Tamar understood, a mother of Kali Yisrael gives up. She doesn't put her own ideas and wants and desires before someone else. If someone else is going to suffer, 
You give up everything. And Aisha's Petifer couldn't think of anything else except for her own desires. Have a good night and a good Shabbos.